How's the sound back there? You hear okay? That's it, yes, all right. I'll say a little bit about what is coming up. December 9th, which is the second Friday in December, is Sam Harris, who's written a wonderful book called The End of Faith. Um, and his subject is The View from the End of the World. I guess uh, you might say uh, it's what happens if you take the rapture seriously. January 13th, the second Friday, is uh, on the subject of nuclear power, climate change, and the next 10,000 years. An almost debate between Peter Schwartz, my colleague from Global Business Network, and one of the board members along now, and uh, Ralph Cavana from uh, National Research uh, Defense Council. Then February 10th, a second Friday, an uh, anthropologist named Stephen Lansing, who I ran into at Santa Fe Institute, and he's been doing work on how irrigation works in Bali. This is a system they've been refining for a thousand years. They've built a whole spiritual practice around it. Uh, basically, whole towns are organized around it. And every time somebody from the West comes in to try to improve things, they fuck it up. And it's a highly nuanced, highly sophisticated, really, really interesting and quite beautiful to look at uh, system. So it's a, a wonderful case of uh, a long-term evolved uh, cultural system that uh, will be fun to see. Now, one of the reasons I asked Clay Shirky to come to this series, and, and he could only do a Monday night, and that's why we're here, is the Long Now Foundation, since we started almost 10 years ago, have been worrying about everything going digital and then everything digital going temporary. And in terms of continuity of civilization, that is not a formula for success. And probably many here have already found that oh, accounting files or word files or things from a decade ago uh, may still be on floppy disks that actually floppy, but uh, you can't recover it with anything. The hardware has moved on, the software has moved on, and it's as if you never wrote whatever it was. Well, that kind of thing is happening on a massive scale. Um, and is not going to get better. So far, it's just going to get worse. Uh, I've seen Clay Shirky working on this subject a little bit with Library of Congress, which is starting to step up to the issue. Congress even put a couple hundred million dollars uh, toward trying to take on digital preservation. And the, the point to realize is that digital storage is easy, and we do it all the time, but digital preservation is keeping things fit for use over decades and centuries, please, and millennia would be nice. What we're doing it long now is uh, Kurt Bollocker, who is here, is uh, cranking up a, a website which is similar to our Rosetta project, which is collecting all of the spoken languages of the world online in one place. We're up to several thousand now. And this will be a place where all the file format conversion uh, algorithms and formulas and whatnot will be collected. So when you realize that your important records are in some kind of uh, file that was a proprietary to a company which is just in the process of going out of business and it will become an orphan, uh, you will find not only a conversion formulae and algorithms, but advice on what to convert uh, that about-to-be-dead material into that may last longer. So this is something Long Now has taken on seriously for quite a while. And Clay is, is uh, unlike many, looked at it much more in social and cultural terms 
And he's the expert in that. So that's why he's talking tonight. Clay Shirky. While he's finding his way all the way up here to the stage, I'll say one more thing, which is you have these cards, which spell out some about Clay, and also have on the back, if you haven't seen it before, the format we use for questions, which is uh, all during the talk and during Q&A afterwards, go ahead and write down um, a question you might have, pass it to a person in one of the yellow volunteer hats, that'll be passed up to me and Kevin Kelly in the front, and we'll pick out the really good stuff and, and uh, ask it of Clay. Uh, it's helpful if you put your name on it, because then we can find you in the audience and Clay will know who he's talking to. And if you don't get email announcements of these series, you can put your email address on the bottom. Sorry, Clay, it's all yours. That's quite all right. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, let me uh, offer a little bit of background about where this, uh, Stuart uh, mentioned the sort of concern for digital preservation as a social issue, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about where that came from. Uh, I was the, the head of the technical working group that was drafting... Uh, Oh, sorry. Is that better? All right, very good. I was the head of the technical working group that was drafting the, the legislative proposal before Congress for NDIP, the National Digital Information Infrastructure and Preservation Program, world's worst acronym. Uh, and then in the first year of that, uh, that program's life was responsible for coming up with some architectural principles for federating digital preservation. Uh, during that period, we designed something called the Archive Ingest and Handling Test, where we took a moderately complicated real-world archive. It was George Mason University's archive of material collected after the 911 attacks uh, and gave it to several different institutions to see how they would handle it differently. Uh, it was, as far as we know, the largest comparative test of digital archives uh, yet undertaken. And one of the things that struck me during both the, uh, the end-up process and particularly during the archive ingest handling test was that all of the ways we had of handling metadata, of describing the digital contents we were handling that had been brought over from the offline world, from the world of handling books and manuscripts and so forth, felt like a bad fit. And so I've, I've uh, spent some time trying to figure out why that is, um, and, and that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about this in sort of three, three pieces. First of all, I want to talk about preservation in general and digital preservation in particular, why it's a hard problem. Um, then I want to talk especially about classification systems. Um, and finally, I want to talk about uh, a new approach to uh, creating some of the same value we get from classification systems without some of the rigidity, uh, which is called tagging. So I'll start uh, by talking about preservation. The disorienting thing in talking about preservation is that preservation is an outcome. You cannot ever say, I will preserve something to end date, because you don't actually know. Like anyone who's ever hosted anything in a... Uh, uh, who's, ever, who's ever had a website hosted somewhere, has seen all of the redundant backups, and yet occasionally things happen. And so really all you're doing is lowering risk, right? You can't actually say, I'm going to ensure that this is preserved over a long time. All you can say is, I'm going to take as many steps as I can to, to improve the chances of this being preserved. So I'll give you an example. Right? I wrote a book in, uh, in the early 90s called Voices from the Net. Uh, it was about uh, text-based virtual culture, muds and moos, the well, echo, these kinds of things. I had the misfortune to publish it or to have it be published in April of 1995, which is the year that the web was washing everything about the text-only Internet away. Uh, and so it was quickly remaindered. And I don't have 
an electronic copy of this manuscript, although it was entirely created electronically, and I, I shipped it off to Ziff Davis electronically. And they had not yet gotten their process completely electronic, so they also don't have an electronic copy of this manuscript. And so although I have some incentive to keep this work of writing around, I have failed to do it. Meanwhile, every single word I said on Usenet in that same year, to my horror, <laughs> is perfectly preserved for all the world to see. So this is, this is what I mean about preservation as an outcome. I would not have successfully predicted in 93 when I was having flame wars on Usenet and also trying to create a serious work that it was the flame wars and not the serious work that would last until now. Right. So uh, the first order problem we face right, is that bits are fairly temporary. As I, as I have heard Stuart say, digital data lasts forever or five years, whichever comes first. Right. And there is this problem we, we have with digital media um, where you can see here, I think, the, the time frames that these things are imagined to last. Um, in particular, optical discs, CDs of various sorts, were, we were told were going to last 10 to 100 years. Um, a number of tests have shown that after a single year, many of them can exhibit significant dropouts. And everything up here with an asterisk is a projected number because all we know is that the manufacturers say that's about how long we think it's going to last. It's been tested. But we haven't actually had enough elapsed time since the invention of those materials to know whether or not this is going to work. So you can see here that the maximum, an untested number here, is 100 years. Right? So first, the first order problem we have is if we want to keep anything around longer than a century, we have to do something to it in the middle to continue to preserve it. And this is a classic shearing layers problem. Shearing layers is Stewart's concept from How Buildings Learn. And in How Buildings Learn, he says, the interior decoration of a room changes faster than the walls. The walls change faster than the structure. The structure changes faster than the site, and so forth. So here we have this shearing layer problem, which is if we want to keep the bits around for a long time, we have to periodically refresh the media. And so we have a zone of fast change and a zone of slow change. Only the problem is we're not actually preserving bits. One of the problems with digital preservation is it makes it sound like it's about keeping the digits around. When you get them back, you know what it is? It's just a bunch of ones and zeros. What you really care about is preserving the essence. Right? And once you care about preserving the essence, right, the, the use of the material, right? I got these ones and zeros out that were preserved 100 years ago, and it's something called a Wang database. What is that? Right? Well, it's the same as raw disk space, because you have no way of reading it back if all you've preserved is the ones and zeros. So suddenly we realize that the, the media alone is not the only shearing layer involved here. We also have to worry about the format. Right? We have to make sure that we can read it. But of course, a format alone isn't enough because it needs something to play it back. Right? So here we have the problem of how do we play the format back. Now, the, 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 the simplest way to think of this is I've got a Microsoft Word file, so I need a copy of Microsoft Word to play it back, it seems. You've got a format, you need a piece of software. But in many cases, it's not a single piece of software. Right? It's actually a whole complicated set of dependencies. This is something designed to run in Flash in a particular browser. This is a Perl program which requires these particular libraries and so on. So there's this entire complex of shearing layers right, 
that has to do with the software, inter- the, the environment that interprets the format. And of course, software doesn't run in a vacuum. Then you have to start dealing with the operating system and the architecture. And we have a fairly standard way of thinking about operating systems running on chips. But there are companies like Transmeta that are trying to radically alter that. So you don't just save the operating system and the chip. You then also have to save all of the instructions that said how that chip interpreted that particular operating system and so on. And you can see what's happening here. The longer you want to keep something, the more shearing layers there are. The longer you want to keep something, the less the problem becomes purely technological and the more it becomes social. Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's assume that the Constitution was being written not in the 1780s, but in the 1980s. And being the revolutionaries they were, the Founding Fathers would doubtless have used an Apple II. So this is now the site of the U.S. Constitution. And since James Madison was a bit of a cut-up, we can assume that they did the first draft and ransom them. Because... Why not, right? It's just a draft. Now, let's say that you wanted to preserve this. Obviously, a pretty important document. Let's say you wanted to preserve this with as few shearing layers as possible. I know what to do. We're going to adopt the model from the analog world. They just keep the physical book around, right? And it doesn't decay. And the physical book can last for centuries. So we're not just going to preserve the bits in Apple, in Apple Works format with the Apple II operating system. We're actually going to put the machine into a bath of pH-neutral, non-oxidizing oil. And every few decades, we're going to take it out and dry it off and fire it up just to make sure it works again. So now imagine a couple hundred years from now, it's the time to do this. And they take the machine out, and they dry it off. And somebody says, hey, what's this? (laughs) Oh, that's a power cord. Yeah, they didn't have nano-green echo-nuclear power the way they had now. They had copper wires back then, right? And you think you've solved the shearing line problem until you realize you have to emulate 120 volts, 60 hertz AC, right? So there's no defense against this. However deep you want to go, right, it's going to turn into a social problem at some point because digital data sits in an interpretive context that can't be gotten rid of by anything other than printing it out on paper. And if you have a kind of digital object that can't be printed out on paper, right, then you're really stuck managing the social issues. We don't know how bad a problem this is. We can guess that it's pretty bad, and Stuart, Stuart alluded to that. Um, we've, had only a f- we've only had digital data around for a fairly short period. So we don't know where and when these problems are going to appear. But we have had some early signals. In 1086, during the time of William the Conqueror, the the Domesday Book was created, which was essentially a census of of English land. And at the 900th anniversary of the Domesday Book, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which was getting into the business of making and, and selling the BBC Micro, decided that they would do a 900th anniversary version of the Domesday Book, highly annotated, a lot of scholarly notes, and they stored it on video disc. And in 1990, they laid everybody in that unit off because the BBC Micro had turned out not to work that well. And by the middle of the 90s, you could no longer read the Domesday Book as it appeared on the BBC Micro, but the regular Domesday Book was just chugging along fine. Right? This thing has lasted the better part of a thousand years. This didn't make it ten. 
two orders of magnitude difference. It was only a couple of years ago recovered through heroic efforts. Right? An enormous amount of cost uh, was, was spent to try and get the Domesday Book off of the BBC Micro. Right. So, when you have these kind of systems, what you really have, what you, what you have to have to make digital preservation work in this environment, is the continually refreshed possibility for action. And you can do things to slow down the rate of refreshment. Right? You can slow down the cycles of the shearing line. Better to store things on long-term storage instead of short-term. Better to use formats that are going to be more likely long-lived than short-lived and so forth. But you can't stop it. And so you have to have a system where you continually refresh the possibility for action. And seeing these two things side by side, you can see what happened to the BBC Micro, which is essentially the social context in which this continued to function simply went away. So now we can, we can elevate this to the level of a kind of principle when thinking about mitigating preservation risk, which is that cheap, flexible systems with large numbers of participants tend to the lower the risk. Cheap, flexible systems with large numbers of participants tend to ensure that more things will get preserved. Because preservation decisions are made on the margin, right? At each point that I moved off of one laptop and onto another or changed ISPs, I could have taken steps to preserve the manuscript of that book I wrote in 1993. And at one of those steps, I don't even know which one, I just didn't do it. And that's all it takes. So the issue here is not, can we preserve a certain piece of content? Yes, you can at some expense. But if you're spending the money there, what else are you losing elsewhere? There's no way we can keep everything. And so we end up moving towards cheap and flexible systems uh, as a way of maximizing uh, maximizing the potential for preservation and lowering the risk. We can also talk about the corollary, which is that high-cost, brittle systems, which are practiced by a small number of participants on behalf of a large number of people, as with the careful encoding of this into video disk, actually tend to increase the risk that things will be lost over the long haul. Which brings me to the subject of classification. Classification... Uh, is, at base, about finding things. There are other second-order values, but really it exists to help people find things. But classification is not the only... There, there are other ways to find things besides classification systems. So consider your kitchen. I hope your kitchen doesn't look like this, but consider your kitchen. Right? Depending on what kind of cook you are and what kind of shopper you are, there's some place between 1,000 and 10,000 things in your kitchen, every spoon, every plate, every can of beans, every chopstick. Right? And most of those things aren't labeled, and yet you can find them pretty well. Right? You may be a little messier or a little neater, but you could probably get the work done you need to get done in your kitchen. Right? But you don't have a label on the spoon that says spoon, and you don't have a label on the drawer of spoons that says drawer of spoons. Right? What's labeled in your kitchen? Your cans are labeled, your spices are labeled. Why are those things labeled? They're labeled because you can't see in them. There are a lot of them, they're basically the same, and they're hard to inspect, right? A can of chickpeas and a can of tomatoes weigh about the same, and without their labels, they look about the same. And you can't open them up to figure out what's inside them. They're hard to look into, right? So in those situations, even when you have a small number of things involved, right, you need to fall back on labels. Who has that problem in extremis? Libraries do, and this is the Seattle libraries, the very model of a modern major public work. Right. 
Libraries have such a big problem with multiples of objects that are about the same and are hard to inspect that they not only have to have lots of labels, they have to have labeled labels, and they have to label their label labels, and so on, right? until it rolls up into a categorization system. And the goal, the goal of classifying is essentially to have uh, a completely specified domain. In the case of the library, it's all of human effort. So that when new material comes along, it has a niche already provided for it in that classification system. Here, for example, is the Dewey Decimal System. A classic example of this, the idea behind Dewey from the name, right, is that there are 10 top-level categories uh, which cover all of human endeavor. Right? Within those categories, within each of those categories can be 10 subcategories, and within each of those 10 subcategories can be 10 sub-subcategories, and so on. Um, and at some point, you can uniquely specify each work. The advantage of this kind of system is that a, the human thought has gone into organizing it beforehand so that as new books come in, you don't have to continually react. There are, however, some issues with systems like this. Here, for example, is the Dewey Decimal Categorization for Religion. How much is this not? How much is this not what you want? Right? The disadvantage of systems like that is also that human thought has gone into them. The advantages and the disadvantages are the same thing, which is to say it necessarily reflects the bias of its creators. Now, it's easy to say, oh, Dewey... Right, that was obviously, you know, that, uh, there's obvious bias there. There wasn't careful thought. We didn't know as much about classification systems. We're effectively over that now. The Seattle Library, the Rem Koolhouse Library, which has gotten so much attention, um, has as its internal plan, speaking of shearing lines, the idea of a continuous collection. There's a single ramp that runs through the entire building in a flat spiral, from the top all the way to the bottom. And that ramp is poured so that the Dewey Decimal System will be reflected directly in the architecture of the building. It's one thing to say, well, the Dewey System is a kind of a mistake, and we know that mistake, and we don't make those kinds of mistakes anymore. Right? Except that we do. In fact, we are currently pouring our mistakes into concrete. Right? It's going to be a long time before mistakes like this leave the system because they're actually being made more and more durable rather than less and less. Right. Dewey, of course, is not the only classification system. There are more sophisticated ones. For example, the Library of Congress classification scheme, um, obviously by going with letters and having multiples of letters, right, you have a much more flexible namespace um, much more possibility of subdivision, and it wasn't the product of a single mind. There's actually a group that's responsible for, uh, for creating and maintaining this. But even here, right, we want to run into issues. So here's D, right? General and old world history. First of all, history about the new world and history about the old world are different kinds of history, are in different categories within the system. But here we are in D, uh, general and old world history. And I'd like to call your attention to the three items that are colored. The Balkan Peninsula, Asia, Africa. And just, you know, to review the geography. Right? I was going to do this example with Switzerland, which also gets its own top-level category. It doesn't even show up on this map. Right? So what's being optimized here? What they've said is, we can't eat the reshelving costs 
of exploding the top-level system. So we have to leave DK covering the things DK has always covered. We're just going to add former to the front end of that. Well, it's only 15 years ago, right? Except to a 22-year-old, right, for whom the Soviet Union collapsed when they were still running around in the playground, it's hard to remember which countries go in that category right? and play that out. Right? How long does this get stay wrong before they fix it? What if you had to remember which American states were former British colonies before you could look them up? What if you had to remember which southern European countries were former Moorish colonies before you had to pick them up? Right? Former Hittite empire, yes or no? <laughs> right? At some point... Right? And this is where long now-ish thinking comes in at some point. Right? This goes from being a minor annoyance to being a real impediment to using the system. And yet another example. Right? Gypsies. Right? I love this. Right? The idea is essentially history is primarily geographically arranged. Right? Geography is destiny is an idea embedded in this classification system overall. And yet here we have gypsies who plainly defeat country. Right? Defeat the idea of country if you're going to be talking about a history. And yet, if gypsies are there, where are the Kurds? Where is the Jewish diaspora? Right? This is, the, the deeper you look, the more these kinds of systems reveal themselves to be ways of managing the, the physical contents, the analog problem of the book world, and less about actual worldview. Now, it's easy to say, right? okay, this is about books. Right? We now have all of this digital data. Right? These are classes of mistakes that we accept because it's better than the alternative, which is chaos. Right? Books aren't inspectable. They have to have labels, and there are so many labels that the labels have to have labels. So this is the kind of system we need for books, and we just take the fact that it's not as, as good as we'd like. But we don't surely need to make those mistakes in the digital world. So a little over 10 years ago, two guys out of Stanford decided they were going to help people find things on the web. And they launched a service called Yahoo, which later became a company. And Yahoo was mostly, in the beginning, a list of links. Here's some cool stuff. You might want to check this out. You might want to check that out. And as the web grew explosively, the lists got long. And then they had to start having lists of lists and lists of list lists. And then they realized they had a serious information management problem on their hands. And they went after it by creating a classification scheme. They even hired an ontologist. That was on her business card, Yahoo staff, on chief ontologist. Right? And here's the Yahoo top-level categories. This should look familiar to you. It is categories which roll up to subcategories, the subcategories roll up to sub-subcategories, and so on. Right? Here we are in the entertainment category of the Yahoo directory. And you can see here classic subcategories and so forth. And there's there's these sets of numbers here which tell you roughly how many links roll up under each of these categories. Except over here, books and literature don't get a number. They get a little at sign instead. It doesn't tell you how many links roll up under books and literature. And that's because books and literature aren't really here. Right? You know, if you mistakenly think that books are entertaining, Yahoo is happy to correct you because what the at sign means is they're over there. Right? Right? Books and literature are elsewhere. This is, you know, Xbox kind of stuff. Right? So you click that link, right? And you're taken over to, to, oh, I see, arts, humanities, literature. That's where books go. They're not entertainment. So now we get numbers and subcategories, except booksellers. You know, I mean, a little commercial, 
right? This is really about aesthetics over here. Commerce is someplace else, right? So booksellers aren't really here, right? And the ontological vertigo of this is this kind of link is no different than this kind of link, right? You can see what happened here. Yahoo, faced with the possibility of having to organize things without analog constraints, added the shelf back. They didn't know how to organize it any other way, or they assumed that their users would require this form of organization or both, and they added the shelf back. They added back the constraints that said things really go someplace else, and it's okay to put pointers from other places. But we can't treat the pointers from other places as being the same as where things really go. Right. Then, in 1998, Google came along. Two guys out of Stanford who decided they were going to start a company to help people find things on the web. And Google dispensed with all of this. And this was Google's model instead. There's a page, and it has a directed link to another page. Except that, when you blow that out, right, you start to get a network, and you start to be able to look at the clusters, what goes with what, what points to what. Google's principal intuition was that the World Wide Web and even websites were not real. They're just metaphors. They're ways we think about things. All that's real is the link structure. And if we analyze the link structure, we can pull a lot of value out that you can't get from classification systems. We all remember what happened after Google launched. The interesting coda to this story is that Google also got worried. They said, well, Yahoo has a directory. They have search, but they also have a directory. Maybe we should get a directory. So then they got DMOZ, the open source directory left that had come from the Mozilla project. Now, open source is, as everyone knows, magic pixie dust, and it makes everything that you sprinkle it on turn good. Right? <laughs> so... Here we have an open source version of the categorization scheme, a radically different mode of production. Right? And what you see when you look through DMOZ is exactly the same classes of errors. For instance, if you go into recreation or sports, right, rather if you're looking at recreation and sports, if you're looking for football, it will tell you that football is not recreation, it's a sport. It will happily repoint you, so you'll be correct in the future. But if you think that football is recreation, you're wrong. Also, if you think that football is business, you are wrong. In other words, the class of errors made here had nothing to do with the mode of production. Now, as I said earlier in the uh, talking about preservation in general, we don't, we don't yet know how large a class of problem this is going to be because we've had digital data around so infrequently. But we can infer some things from the past. And this time I mean the deep past, not the shallow past. We can ask, have we lost anything in ways analogous to the danger of classification, to the, the brittleness created by classification systems? So here's the Venus of Willendorf, right? famous figurine, uh, discovered near Willendorf, Germany. Um, she is a paleolithic fertility symbol, we are told. What is that? What is a fertility symbol? Right? Is this a magical talisman to make women bear children? Is it porn? We don't know. Right? We don't have fertility symbols in any, in any form in our culture in a way that makes it possible to read this. Right? We've lost the context. We've kept the object, but we've lost the context. 
At least, however, the object here is informative. There's a kind of visual onomatopoeia, as it were. You can look at this figurine and read a lot from it, even though you've lost the social context. The risk is that the more semantic things get, the bigger the context problem. So here are some things that we've really lost. Top left is Rongo Rongo. Uh, it's the language uh, from Easter Island. It may, in fact, there, there is some debate as to whether or not this is a language or merely a collection of symbols which was evocative but not communicative in the way we expect language to be communicative. In the middle uh, is Kwipu, the, uh, the Inca uh, calculating and recording system. And at the bottom is Linear A, uh, a, Mycenaean, uh, a Mycenaean alphabet, which actually seems to be syllable-based rather than, uh, than letter-based. We can't read any of these well. There's enormous effort going on. They've all now been partially decoded. But we can't read any of them well. Because unlike the Venus of Willendorf, there's nothing here. If you lose the semantics of a language, you lose everything. So this is much more analogous to the digital preservation problem than the Venus of Willendorf. Because although these are physical objects and we have the physical objects, having lost... The, having lost the social context in which these language or numbering systems existed, we have not been able to retrieve. Here's another thing. This is something we almost lost. This is hieroglyphs, right? The official, the official language of uh, dynastic Egypt. And this disappeared uh, as a real written language and indeed as anything anyone could read or write. Uh, sometime after the birth of Christ, and stayed unreadable for centuries, um, and would have continued to be unreadable for at least some time, but for this, the Rosetta Stone. Right? This saved us. This kept hieroglyphs from falling into the Rongo, Rongo, Linear A category. Uh, because what went on here is that the top part of the Rosetta Stone is hieroglyphic. The middle part is demotic, which is the vulgar Egyptian script, vulgar in the, in the sense of, of the people, um, script of Egypt that had come from hieroglyphs. And the bottom is Greek. Right? And when they saw the stone, they realized it must be the same thing written out three different ways in three different systems from three different societies. And working back from that over the course of two decades, Champion was able to finally decode hieroglyphs, and they went from lost to found. So what's the difference? What's the difference between what happened with the Rosetta Stone and what happened with Rongo, Rongo, Kwipu, and Linear A? And the difference is degeneracy. Right. Now, probably a big waste of somebody's money to fly a New Yorker out to the Bay to extol the virtues of degeneracy. But in this case, I have a particular meaning in mind. Right. Degeneracy is the property of systems where there's more than one way to do things. Right. So here, we have three simultaneous ways of encoding the same meaning, side by side. Had we, in some alternate history, lost Greek but kept demotic, the Rosetta Stone would have worked in the same way. Right? So this is not merely backup. It's not merely physical backup. It is, in a way, contextual backup. Right? Christopher Alexander makes this point. Christopher Alexander is the architect who, who invented the idea of pattern languages. Christopher Alexander made this point in an essay called A City is Not a Tree, by which he does not mean a tree with green leaves, but rather uh, it is not a hierarchical lattice. 
And he says the problem with planned cities is everyone gets so excited about the planning, they forget about the city. Let's have all the business in one place, right? And they'll have the residential area in another place. And then we'll have the transportation hub over here, right? And that's the model on this side. This is essentially a Venn diagram version of what a hierarchy looks like, right? And Alexander says real cities are degenerate. Real cities have multiple overlapping systems. People live where they work, and the parks are sometimes near the transportation hubs and sometimes far away. But there are lots of overlaps, right? This is much closer to what happened to the Rosetta Stone. This is, this is essentially what, how the Rosetta Stone saved, uh, saved us with hieroglyph. Right? So when you take this representation of a hierarchy and you take it back to the idea of a classification system, right? say we have two big buckets, right? There's books about art, and there's books about engineering. And some of the art books are about creativity. And then somebody goes and publishes a book about creativity and engineering. Rot, rot. Right. Now we've got a problem. Because if I want to say there is a literature of creativity in my library, I've lost the ability to give anybody a top-level handle in the classification system. And this is also not a good way to do it, because there are plainly things that are in art and in engineering that are not about creativity. So I can't just trivially reverse it. The problem here is in the requirement for non-overlap. It's not in what the overlaps are. What's wrong, what, what Alexander is talking about with planned and unplanned cities and degeneracy is the same issue that appears in classification systems, which is the brittleness created by these kinds of expectations um, creates a problem. Now, I don't mean to suggest that classification systems are the only way to find things in libraries. They have lots of other systems, many of them um, involving free text search or other kinds of non-classifying non labels. But back to the point about economics, the question you're asking here is not, are there ways to find things? But is the money spent on building and maintaining these systems um, worth the value? Because everything, if, if preservation decisions are made on the margin, right, then there may come a day where the preservation system, where the, where the individual systems are the only thing, the Rosetta Stone-like strand, that holds the past to the future. Right? And since we know the awful math of time is unlikely times many equals probable, right, there may come a point at which either the money spent, the, 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 the expense taken by these systems coupled with their brittleness, actually leads to some damage. An obvious question that can come out of this is, what would a degenerate labeling system look like? Right? If you didn't have to do it that way, if you didn't have to do it hierarchically, if you didn't have to support yourself against overlaps, what would you do instead? And I think what you'd do would look something like this. And I, I don't mean literally that it would look like a roller skating mermaid. I mean the roller skating mermaid, I think, will help illustrate the point. Uh, first Saturday of every summer, uh, Coney Island, our famously run-down amusement park in Brooklyn, plays host to the Mermaid Parade. Hundreds of people show up in costume, they march around, thousands of people show up to watch, people get all dressed up, there's dancing in the streets, there's colorful characters, and a good time is had by all. Right. And the question is, where did I get those photos? And the answer is I got them off of Flickr, of course. Um, I didn't take those photos. I went to Flickr, and I found the tag Mermaid Parade. So this looks a lot like a classification scheme. 
But here it looks like a library. This looks like a classification scheme. There is this thing called Mermaid Parade. I can go to it. I can get these photos. Right? What's the advantage here over what a library is doing? One of the advantages, one of the differences at least, uh, is that Flickr does not have a staff ontologist. It does not have anybody doing the classifying. In fact, one of the big differences here is the number of people doing the classifying. In this case, there are several thousand photos. There's over a hundred photographers. Um, and every one of these photographers was not just a photographer, but also a kind of librarian, because they all added the tag Mermaid Parade. So this is now not a small group of professionals modeling the group mind on behalf of the larger group. Right? We think that they will think about the concepts this way. We think that history is mainly broken down by geography. This is, this is modeling the group mind with the group mind. Right? The second big difference here is that there is no top-level classification system that's being adhered to. Right? There's no coordination among these 118 photographers. It would, in fact, be too expensive to do that coordination. So this is a distributed system, which is also low cost, because the, the, the people doing the tagging uh, are not being required to coordinate with one another. In something analogous to Google's model, Flickr's model is this. Right? There are more primitives than in Google's model. But they've added a tag, which is essentially a labeled link. A tag can go to a photo. And tags come from users. And as with Google, the real value here is when you blow it out, right, you can start to do network analysis. But now you can do network analysis on more primitives. right? You can start looking not just at link density, but at tag density, at user density, and so on. Uh, you may have seen on the Mermaid Parade page right, that there was this, related, Coney Island in Brooklyn. Now, Flickr doesn't know that the Mermaid Parade is an event that happens in Coney Island, which is in Brooklyn. Right? From Flickr's point of view, this is Fubar and Frobnitz, right? These are just two tags that appear at a higher than average frequency whenever they appear with the tag Mermaid Parade. And yet, by doing the cluster analysis, Flickr is able to pull this kind of value out. So here's another example, um, another system that uses tagging. This is Delicious. This is the headwaters of the Nile. Joshua Schachter, in fact, uh, the inventor of Delicious, was the person who invented the, the word tagging to describe this method of, of attaching labels to things. As a side note, it's interesting to imagine that if he'd called them categories or keywords, a lot of this would have, would have been washed away in the user assumptions. But by calling them tags, which is right on that edge of descriptive and strange, he called a lot of people's attention to the phenomenon. So Delicious is a social bookmarks manager. It's analogous to Backflip back in the day, where the day was 1996 or something, except that uh, it's, got a, it's got a more open and social model. So you add, you add a link here. Um, you, get, you get both the link and, and the title or whatever you type in there. You can add a, a descriptive line. Uh, your username is there, and then you can add these tags, which are the labels just like they, just like they appeared on, uh, on Flickr. And this is my favorite. Oh. This is my favorite uh, from the moment I took this uh, snapshot. Cats in sinks. It's a website for pictures of cats in sinks or other basin-like objects. Right. This this is pretty much what the internet has been straining to become. I think we can probably <laughs> all go home now. Uh, the model here 
It's almost exactly the model of Flickr. No accident, Joshua was the one who convinced Flickr to start using tags, except that instead of photos, there's a much more general purpose entity which is being decorated by the tags. Anything that has a URL can also be tagged, and you can begin doing the network analysis there. So this enables us to do things like asking questions about how a given resource has been characterized by the community. Um, here is uh, the delicious page for one uh, single URL. It's about uh, the Linksys router, which is a very popular Wi-Fi router uh, made by the Linksys unit of Cisco, and how they've changed the underlying Linux operating system to a different operating system, but they haven't changed the model number. It's a geek soap opera of, of epic proportion. <laughs> right. And you can, you can ask yourself, you can see here that it's been tagged by 431 people, and you can ask yourself, essentially, how is this being characterized? And here's the answer. Right. The, the most common tag is WRT54G, which is just the, uh, the model number from Linksys. Right. But then you have this little cluster of three tags, Linux, Wi-Fi, Linksys, and they're roughly even. Right? They're roughly even. So this is a judgment that there's no one obvious thing that this is about, that part of the reason this is important is it exists at the overlap of a lot of different trends. Right? So this is one kind of signature you can find in the communal judgment about these resources. Here's one for making a paper airplane. You can see here that there's not that shelf. There's really a much gentler slope, right? Paper, airplane, fun, how-to games all fall off in this kind of steady slope. Uh, and you can see here that the top two are paper airplane. And you can see how you maybe type paper airplane. But because delicious assumes tags are separated by spaces, it says, oh, we'll just treat paper as one tag and airplane as another. Right? But the community's judgment is that paper is, this is slightly more about paper than it is about airplane, which feels about right, right. So even in things that are very close, there's some, some information in the distinction. This is another tag signature. This is for CSS Vista, which is a piece of software for web designers. Here the community's view is decisive. This is about CSS. Right? Software, web design, tools, design, everything else is on a completely different kind of curve. Right? This is absolutely about CSS. Everything else is half as important or less in the minds of all of the people who've tagged this. So the problem with classification systems is the rigidity of it's in or it's out. Right? And even with multiples, you don't get out of the in or out problem. Right? Yahoo, because of course they could have had an unlimited number of those little at sign links, also said you can only have three links, no more. Right? And the three number was more about minimizing the amount of human effort at Yahoo and defending against spammers than any judgment about the applicability of more than one category to a topic. Right? Here, not only do you get places where people say, this is really kind of about these three things, whereas this is clearly about this one, if you're looking for sort of head-oriented tagging, right? you also don't get it in this in-or-out quality. The community can not only tell you what things are about, they can tell you how much they're about them relative to other things. This is, this is a kind of value that's not reflected in classification systems. There is no such thing as information architecture separated from the users. Information doesn't have architecture any more than information wants to be free. No, no offense, Stuart. Um, those are, like the World Wide Web, like websites, all metaphors. Um, but they are unfortunately metaphors that block us from recognizing that the problem here is modeling the group mind for the users. Right? 
So one of the, one of the complaints about tagging systems is that tagging systems exist in a flat namespace. Right? The idea is that, yes, they have this kind of labeling value and that's fine, but they don't create uh, the characteristics which hierarchy for all its problems does about which things go with which things in a kind of nesting relationship. So here's what a flat namespace looks like. Right? These are three notional usernames. Um, I'm too embarrassed to say these are actually three usernames I've used in the past. So we'll just say someone has used these usernames at, at various points. You can imagine these as being three names on LiveJournal or three names in an IAM client or whatever. This is actually a flat namespace. This is a namespace where no two of these names are connected to one another. They're just labels that exist within the same pool. And the idea here right, is that Tagging has the same characteristics, that for all of the kind of art engineering creativity thing right, within hierarchies, at least you can make some of those kind of statements. But with tags, all you get is this. right? You get post-it notes and nothing else. But that's not true, because tags are attached to URLs. And once you pull the URLs up, you can see what tags go with them. So you can, in fact, do this. Right? Hierarchy is, in fact, a subset of tagging. Right? The Christopher Alexander example showing nested, uh, you, can, you can model hierarchies in tag form by simply nesting tags inside other tags so that the boundaries never overlap. But you can also overlap the boundaries and you can start to get this, where you can choose to have a top-level handle about creativity, but you can also have the overlap of art and creativity or the overlap of art, creativity, and, and engineering, and so on. And we are, in fact, seeing this in real tagging systems. If you go and you look on Delicious, you'll see tags for Python and Perl, which are two uh, lightweight uh, programming languages. I shouldn't say lightweight. Um, two uh, scripting programming languages. Uh, and then there's the tag programming. What you see when you actually start to grasp the overlaps, though, is that Delicious is telling you that Python and Perl each appear with programming but don't appear with each other. In other words, it's starting to do the grouping that if you demand to see everything as simply a pair, x goes with y, x doesn't go with y, pairwise comparisons in a tagging universe are hard. But once you move to networks, right? once you say these nodes exist in a relationship with one another and we're going to begin examining the group, you start to get informative information out like this. And you can continue it with other programming languages like C and Java and so forth. Here's another interesting thing. C and Java are connected to the tag software but Perl and Python not. So there's a judgment in this community that C and Java are different kinds of programming languages. They're more about software. Right? So these are heavier weight languages. This is effectively my interpretation. These are heavier weight languages, and these are lighter weight languages. These are scripting languages, whereas these require some sort of compiling. Right? And the community's judgment right, is that software characterizes these kinds of languages, but not those kinds of languages. So once you move to network analysis, the overlaps are actually proving more informative than they would in classification systems. Right. And finally, to the subject of time, right, we don't have, tags are, are only slightly over two years old, and in any scale we've had them um, only a few, you know, a few months, depending what you think of a scale, but sort of tens of millions of, of uh, uh, URLs tagged in any given system. Uh, this is Pietro Speroni's work. He's, uh, he's in Italy, and he's doing a lot of work on what are called tag clouds, which is essentially ranked 
uh, versions of tags. And so he took a URL here, and he watched what happened to the relative tag frequency. And you can see here, right at the beginning, when the tags come out, it's exactly as people would expect of a, of a distributed and uncoordinated social system, which is basically chaos. Things are moving up and down all the time. But then, right, a week and a half out or so, suddenly, not only are the tags relatively stable, but their order relative to one another is remarkably stable. So, like a market setting a price for something, this is a way of taking a lot of individual work, which would be low value on its own, and rolling it up into something that's relatively high value and stable. But it's not always like this. This is a particularly flat one. In some cases, right, when a sub-community gets hold of these things, right, you can see the relative tag frequencies change. Right? This is a URL which uh, the information architecture community discovered. It was listed on a uh, widely read information architecture site. And you can see these tags where the frequency of some but not all of the tags changed. That's identifying the work of a community of practice. Right? And in fact, you could potentially isolate that group and say, I just want their judgment. I don't, in fact, want the whole thing. And in some cases, although not many, because as I said, tags are, are, are relatively young, you can even see the frequency shift. This is the tag cloud for Jesse James Garrett's article about uh, a, a design style called AJAX, uh, Asynchronous JavaScript plus XML. It's essentially a way to make uh, browser interfaces more responsive. Right? And you can see the red, the red line is the tag AJAX. And you can see when the article came out right, that for a couple of weeks, uh, Ajax was, uh, first of all, not much represented and then, and then climbed quickly. And in the beginning, people said, this is an article about JavaScript. It's about XML. It's about browsers. And he's proposing the label Ajax. And you can see, as the article circulates, that the proposed label takes hold. Right? And at some point, the community says, this is an article about Ajax, which is these other things. This is the picture of a community changing its mind. Right? We can actually see, right? this is the antidote to the former Soviet Union problem, which is things change as they change. When you start modeling the group mind with the group mind, the dynamic signature tells you when things are being altered. So here are, let me end with, um, a set of questions that I'm asking myself about this, because this is all, this is all quite new, and in particular tags have not been tested at long time frames. Um, so while it seems to offer the answer in the digital realm to some of the brittleness of classification systems, there are still lots of open issues. Um, first of all, the one I alluded to in the, uh, in the little social quake diagram, how can tagging identify communities of practice, right? Can we find ways of observing groups that come together and exhibit similar tag frequencies? Can we pull that out of the mix and say, these people seem more design-oriented, whereas those people seem more engineering-oriented? And then is there value in reflecting back to those communities their view of the, uh, of the resource being tagged as opposed to having them look at the view of the community as a whole? How should we handle the thesaurus problem? The thesaurus problem is I tag something menu, you tag it menus, I tag it restaurant, you tag it restaurants. Um, plainly, there would be some value in rolling those things together so they're basically the same. So you make a thesaurus and you say, well, agenda and politic and politics we're going to roll together. Or you say, we're going to roll together Apple and Mac and OSX. Or we're going to roll together gay and queer and homosexual. Right? And then suddenly you're saying that queer politics and homosexual agenda are the same thing. Right? You don't want to get the queer politics and homosexual agenda people in the same room to talk about their shared interests. 
right? So at some point, you have to get off the thesaurus bus. The irony of the thesaurus is, if you move to a system like this and then start thesaurusizing, whatever that word would be, um, at the center, you're recreating the problems of having a small group of catalogers manage the system for you. So applying a thesaurus to these things clearly needs to be happen late in the system, and it needs to be done on the client side. On the other hand, it's a high-cost operation. So is there a way to syndicate a thesaurus to groups so that I could subscribe to the information architecture thesaurus, but it would be applied to the tags after I was looking at them rather than having things smashed at the server? Can we apply this to navigation? One of the places where classification systems are still in, uh, in common use in the digital realm is when you get the width versus depth trade-off enforced by screen real estate. Right? You go to the homepage of GE. They've got their businesses broken down into three top-level categories and then drop boxes for the subcategories and so forth. It is, it is a, a classic classification scheme. Is there a way to model the group mind with the group mind that applies to navigation, not just to the sort of search and finding paradigm? So can and and one answer to this is that there is no expert amateur split here. Experts can also tag. Can you set up a navigation system where experts, people inside, do all the tagging uh, for navigation systems, so the navigation system is is set up, but that users can come in and slowly correct them if they're wrong. Right? I was at Hunter College and we were redesigning the homepage in in 1998, I think, and the registrar refused to believe that students didn't know what the registrar did. So he insisted that there be a button on the homepage that said registrar. And we said, well, you know, students don't know that that means where's the course schedules, where's the class descriptions, where are my grades. That's just a word to them. No, 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 absolutely not. The registrar wanted registrar on the homepage. Right? So that's a place where the inside judgment was actually adverse relative to the community. Is there a way that we can embed community correction into navigation so that the site can know, not just the users, what we can discover from these systems. Popularity risk. I should actually let Dana give this part of the talk. But popularity risk is the idea that um, although we're getting these refined social signatures of what something is about, right? the lazy way out is just give me the top five tags. I'll just, I'll just take the community's judgment about this. I, I don't care about micro subcultures tagging things way out on the tail. Just show me what everybody agrees. right? And that potentially creates popularity risk, which is to say that the overall social judgment of something becomes so overwhelming that it acquires some of the same brittleness as cataloging systems, and that novel opinions about a resource or, or subculture opinions about a resource never get aired. Um, it's an open question. I mean, so many of these things are open questions because this, these, these sorts of systems are, are so young. Uh, can we detect concept rot? I was at the Digital Library Foundation, Federation meeting um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about large-scale systems and how past a certain scale you sort of move to biological models. And someone said, you know what's great about biological systems? When they go bad, they start to stink. And you can tell, right? We saw Ajax going up, right? Can we detect when fertility symbol starts to go down, right? Can we actually look at this not just for bit rot, but for concept rot, so that some of the concepts we're using to hold our ideas together are starting to go away, and we can at least take steps, right, to replace, alter them, um, find other ways of expressing the same thoughts and so on. 
And finally, of course, what can we do about spam, right? Um, spam, which has been regarded as a kind of surface-level annoyance, is, in my view, a pretty deep problem because open social systems create a lot of value and the incentive to mine that value has nothing to do with the incentive to contribute to that value. Right? The more open these systems become, the more valuable they will become, the bigger the target they will become. And ten years ago, when Global Alert for All, Jesus is Coming Soon, or the green card spammers came on Usenet, we could be forgiven for not understanding the nature of the threat, but now we know exactly the nature of the threat, and we're going to face a well-funded and motivated enemy. Is there something we can do to continue to increase the value of these kinds of systems uh, without falling prey to spam? And with that, I'll end. I saw online that you said one time that the only group that can categorize everything is everybody. Is that what you've just said? That's, uh, that's effectively what I've just said. What I would say now, which is maybe a little more nuanced, is I, I, wasn't, I wasn't as focused on the idea of communities of practice because we hadn't yet seen them appearing. So I think that um, the definition of everybody is not necessarily the global culture, but everybody you, you care about, everybody who... Uh, everybody who's part of the group you're part of. And so sometimes you may want the global view, right? Mm -hmm. What is the best Chinese restaurant in Chinatown? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you may want the view of your specific community. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that syndicating, I do think that syndicating the labeling problem is similar to syndicating the pricing problem in markets. Mm -hmm. Well, of the same sort of scale category with everything and everybody is all time. Mm. Where does that fit into this? It fits in well. It, it fits in in a lot of places, and we don't know so well because of the uh, because of the short time frame um, that these things have already been done. But one of the one of the interesting longer term projects is how stable do these label groups remain over time? Mm -hmm. The potential advantage is that if they remain relatively stable, then we can watch for two kinds of changes. We can watch for changes where um, tag frequency adjusts either those little social quakes, which are potentially identifying a new community of practice, um, or where a tag begins to go out of scope or come up as with Ajax. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing we can watch for is when people stop tagging it, because these things are continually being re-tagged. Many mm -hmm. of them are, are decades old. They've been th things that have been on the web for, for more than 10 years. But a new user just found them interesting. And that, mm -hmm. that is part of the continually refreshed possibility for action. Right. When a particular URL stops getting paid attention to at all, we can also say that's at risk. Mm -hmm. We would love to be able to know that things are at risk before the risk happens, which is, what, which is the opportunity we missed with the BBC Micro and the, and the Doomsday Project. How about as, um, as changes of technology come along, not only things sort of rotting away, but in a sense technology quakes like social quakes. So, for example, when we get to the point where the Internet has way more devices on it than there are people, does that affect this kind of thing? Yeah, it does. And, and, and one of the questions is, can, can, can you bootstrap from this kind of semantics to have devices start doing, doing the characterizing? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's really an AI problem. That's, that's out, of, out of the scope of the current research, as they say. <laughs> but um, th certainly, the two things you'd like to be able to do is say, either this resource is coming from these kinds of sensors or these kinds of devices, um, 
It's similar to X in the absence of any human intervention. We're going to adopt this set of tags for it to make it findable. And then what you'd really like to be able to do is take advantage of latent semantic analysis or other of these kinds of tools to have the machines make additional kinds of guesses. Hmm. Um, I think in some cases you'll have to have a balance between the guesses being made by the machines and corrected by the humans. So there may be a kind of uh, weighting algorithm. This has only been characterized by the machines. This hmm. has been characterized by lots of machines and a few humans and so on. Uh, but it, it's, you know... And that's a distinction we'll care about for a while, but not Right, indefinitely. exactly, but not forever, yes, exactly. <laughs> Mostly original substrate humans, as, uh, as Joel says. Yeah. Uh, well, links are a peculiar thing in all this because link structures age quickly. Dead yes. links accumulate, yes. and do they uh, undermine this whole system? They don't because when they go out of scope... Well, first of all, the system, I think, if... if it proves valuable and over the long term, it can actually help us find when a link is broken. Mm -hmm. Because if something is being tagged at some relative frequency and that suddenly stops, we can go and look for it. Right? Because there are many places where it's going to be cached for 30 or 90 days or what have you. Um, and then we can potentially go back to snapshots and so forth. So once something goes away, we can potentially go back to whether it's the Google cache or Internet Archive and re-replicate it elsewhere. For a while. For a while. Mm -hmm. But you know, DNA only lasts for a while. It turns out that little bits of for a while, as long as they overlap this way instead of this way, mm -hmm. um, can, be relatively, um, can be relatively useful. So the idea that biological systems stink in a way, mm -hmm. um, if you can find immediately that there's a problem because the stream of bookmarking to a link stops or attenuates mm -hmm. or radically changes, right, you can potentially call in either some automated or human intervention. Um, the other thing is uh, you start to get, you start to be able to say, um, if you pull in the content with the tag, it says, this is not something delicious does, but you can plainly write your own spider. Mm -hmm. um, someone who cares about preserving content that travels under a particular tag, this enormously lowers the difficulty of doing it. Right? The distributed hard disk use of RSS feeds is this incredible latent resource that we haven't yet taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. um, for syndicating, but we may be able to build preservation tools on top of that as well. Just to <clears throat> track on your metaphor for one minute there, um, the somatic DNA goes away, body DNA, but germline DNA is basically eternal. Right. And but is there the equivalent of that in the system? Germline DNA is, is eternal because, I mean, germline DNA is classically the refreshed possibility for action, which is to say continually recreated. The information content is continually recreated in different physical substrates. Um, so this, this is not a preservation system, but I believe it has ramifications for preservation mm -hmm. systems by allowing for exactly that sort of refreshed, uh, refreshed possibility. I'll ask one more question of mine. I'm sorry about this, but <laughs> um, you were part of an online discussion I was in recently. It was talking about long tail and how lots and lots of participants, there's the usual 80, 20, and 20 people are doing 80% of the comments or whatever it might be and so on down the other direction. And you remarked that you thought the, this is the popularity question, that you couldn't actually take away the long tail, even though it's relatively unimportant part of the whole picture. You say it is an important part of the whole picture and you can't just go with the top five and get meaning. Right. What's going on there? What's that, that argument, hello. Uh, boop, boop, boop. That argument is, oh wait, uh, that this part of the graph 
looks unimportant in terms of the total number of tags being added because it's not, the, the social weight isn't behind this. But it is part of what makes the ecosystem work. So that so what you've really got here is the replacement for uh, a professional system which is going to optimize around these kind of um, relatively narrow constraints to being able to have stuff all the way up to the singletons, all the tags that one and only one person has used. And then it's as an ecosystem that tagging is succeeding. If you try to limit the ecosystem and say, we're actually just going to truncate all the tagging here, uh, I think you'd, you'd, have, you'd have something that was less effective and less successful. The other thing that's weirding me out about these graphs is well, that... You could test that, probably. What do you mean? You could test... I don't know. You, you know. One of the things you do... Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. You just, just take a tagging system and truncate it. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the other things that's weirding me out about these graphs is there's often an internal shelf after the most popular... Um, there's two here. These little internal shelves. And I can't tell if they're noise or if that really is some bump in the, the degree of social cohesion among among the users. But I think that may also be some sign, of some, some value from the tail, is being able to detect when um, something has walked off the edge of its sort of broadly adopted, of the broadly adopted semantic judgment community, and then you're getting that. And I don't think you can get that kind of value without having the, the full range of participation. Okay, a couple of kind of bug fixing questions about uh, tags. One from Alexander Rose, who was where? Way back there, and another from Louis Rosato here. Alexander asks, "How does I'll ask you both? How does tagging deal with heavily factioned definitions like abortion?" Right. And um, Louis asks, uh, "What about the problem of people gaming tags, trying to cause an outcome right. uh, analogous to sperm?" By the way, analogous to sperm. Sperm. Uh, Dance uh, in a super way around the uh, egg, trying to get in. What are you doing? <laughs> right, right. Well, um, for for uh, anyway, gaming goes on. Right, right. Uh, I'll 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 put those two together. The um, contentious subjects just get. I mean, if you if you had say uh, uh, the equivalent of a of a Wikipedia edit war on the on the pro life pro choice thing, because tagging is very much in the wisdom of crowds mode of great disassociation among people tagging, um, you would simply get in rank order what tags people were using. There may well be coordination behind the scenes in those camps. I don't know that we've seen that yet, but the overall surface change would simply be to bump up the relative frequencies of certain tags. That's a place that intersects with popularity risk. It's a little bit, it's, it's analogous to Google bombing, right? Where some small group of highly collected bloggers is able to change a relatively obscure phrase on Google and then circulate it, right? If someone started adopting the top five tags model um, for any given tagging system to characterize a resource, then someone who wanted to go in a, a determined pro-life or pro-choice uh, camp could potentially just blow the tag count through the roof for their their characterizations and deny other groups the ability to see their characterizations reflected. Um, th that's a speculative class of attack, but there's certainly no defense in the system against it right now if people begin adopting the kind of top five tags or popular tags um, mantra. In terms of, of people trying to uh, game the system, that's happening now. There are, there are people who are already doing the most obvious forms of spamming, just going in with a, with a URL and tagging it Everything shows up in every possible, every possible tag stream. Um, uh, the delicious way of handling that is never to show more than 12 tags from one user on the homepage, no matter how many tags are underneath. And the, um, 
The koan posed by Joshua is, if, the, if it doesn't look like spam to the user, is it spam? So rather than trying to remove the things from the system, he's simply trying to make it look like the kind of constant background flow. Back in the day, Delicious would show you, uh, I think, um, the top couple of hours of tags. Now it's showing you um, at most two or three minutes of tags. Um, the, the, I showed both the Yahoo directory and the DMOS directory, which are the largest attempts to categorize the web, classify the web in, in um, sort of standard hierarchical form. Each of those has roughly four and a half million unique URLs in it. Um, Delicious has more than double that number and is growing at the rate of uh, 20, 20 unique URLs a minute or so. So, um, in a way, the kind of public attention of spam is heavily attenuated by the, by the flow through the system. The real risk to spam becomes people watching obscure feeds. If, I have, if I'm watching something called asbestos, right? if I'm watching a tag called asbestos, um, then people shoving things into that may be able to get my attention. But it is, um, it is right now a predator-prey problem with, uh, with spammers. My guess is, in this system and in a lot of systems, we're going to move to a kind of gray list world where it's not just white list, it's not just show me the tags of all of my friends, but show me all of their friends' tags and weight those friends somehow at roughly 50% and maybe friends of friends at 25% so that I have this kind of semi-permeable membrane. Instead of having a white list and a castle, I have this, this gradient of uh, potentially socially valuable information coming from unknown sources into the system. Um, but these are all, again, because tagging is so young, these are all speculative classes of attacks and speculative classes of defense. But, but I, I do think that uh, a lot of that experimentation is coming. Well, you mentioned uh, Wikipedia. I'm curious, how many here use Wikipedia? <laughs> there was a great sort of whooshing sound as yeah. all the hands went in the air. Um, William Petrie, who is where? Right over here. Asked, how do you feel about things that fall between your two poles, like Wikipedia categories? Right, right. So Wikipedia categories are interesting. Um, they have the same problems as these kind of categories. Uh, they, they have the same problems as, as other categorization systems. And I'm sorry, I didn't see where you... I, they have the same problems as other, um, as other categorization systems um, in that hierarchy imposes a dilemma, right? The lattice structure imposes a dilemma on the users. Um, the really interesting thing about the Wikipedia to me is that almost no... The category system is that almost no one uses it, right? Um, if, you, if you Google in URL um, for the category colon tag in Wikipedia... Um, you get almost nothing, right? So, um, like, uh, like Google removing DMOZ from the homepage. In fact, I don't think I told that part of the story, but when Google put DMOZ up on the homepage, right, and they had the entire world's attention for, for finding things for a period, um, no one went to DMOZ, so then they took it back off the homepage. Um, and when I was talking about some of these issues uh, a few months ago, somebody from Yahoo came up after the talk and said, you know, it was funny to hear you talking about that when we were at Yahoo talking about the redesign of the homepage. The only debate was, should we move the uh, Yahoo directory all the way to the bottom of the page, or should we just get rid of it entirely? And we basically kept it, right? but you know, greatly de-emphasized its, uh, its importance. So the category system on Wikipedia is not getting a lot of attention because it turns out not to be the principal tool for finding. One of the, one of the really important things to understand about tagging is people are often weighing tagging systems against classification systems as if, uh, and of course I've just given a whole talk that emphasizes exactly that, um, tagging systems and classification systems as if, as if they exist in the same world. 
one of the key things to understand about tagging systems is they are post-search. Right? This is the first post-search finding technology. It assumes that search is a mature and widely adopted technology. So whereas classification had to fit a bunch of different categories of looking for things, tagging can be much more narrowly focused because search solves that problem. I think the same thing is happening to the Wikipedia, which is Wikipedia has a largely search-oriented, either you know the word or Google knows the word, and the categorization system, um, although it has the same brittleness, the brittleness isn't a problem because Wikipedia is highly degenerate. Uh, here's a Kevin Kelly question. He's sitting right here. Uh, he says, associative clustering, uh, like tags, is how biological memory works. Right. Uh, is the web now thinking? <laughs> no. Um, no. <laughs> I have to go get my pointer. Um, yeah. The problem, I, the problem I have with all of those questions is... Um, I don't know that we know how we're thinking yet. I mean, the, the, and, and since it's not my area, all I can do is parrot the most recent book I've read on the subject, which is the Edelman um, on, on uh, the idea that, that neural networks are actually uh, evolutionarily adaptive. I think what's being evolutionarily adapted here is more in the manner of a tool than a brain, um, so that you can see, for instance, someone did a great study on the, um, the adaptive characteristics of French horns, Right, in a collection of French horns as if they were snails. And you could see the forms change over time as musicians started to ask for minor modifications and those propagated. So my guess is that link structure is being adapted by humans more in the manner of a tool rather than becoming um, autopoetic. But that's, um, that's, I, I'm a layperson on all of those issues, so that's, that's, that's just a guess. Well, what's interesting to me here is uh, what you've been talking about tonight in terms of tags being of the essence is a pretty recent emergent phenomenon on the net. Um, you okay. studied, you know, the ancient era back to the well and things like that. Was there anything going on then that would have led somebody like yourself to say that <clears throat> tagging is going to be important? No. And, and interestingly, um, and, and this could have just been because I, I missed it, um, the... We, we were getting a lot of evidence that the other thing was that, that hierarchical and brittle systems were not working well. In fact, the first, um, mm -hmm. the first thing I saw online which really suggested that the brittleness of classification systems was going to be a problem was Usenet, where they, they overlapped two different requirements. One, globally unique names of conversations, and two, the semantic content of those conversations. So you've got Rec Pets Cats, where, you know, everybody in the whole world who likes cats is going to come and hang out. Right? And the, the, the brokenness of that system essentially meant anybody who wants to talk about anything even remotely related to feminism goes to this one place. And it was, of course, a permanent standing flame war until it went moderated. Right? Mm -hmm. Social culture African-American, which never got moderated, was just a permanent standing flame war. <laughs> and so that was a case where the, the brittleness of the classification system of trying to make the, the, the low-level machine requirements of namespace map to semantic content was a disaster. Um, I think if I could have predicted what the response would be, um, I'd, have, I'd have been smarter than I am. I'd have been Joshua instead of me. Well, I, I guess what I'm in... Uh Noticing is that since tags was noticed so recently and is so fundamental, there's probably more of those yet to come. Right, and I should I should say too I don't I mean 
I think the gener- yeah, I, th- I think the degeneracy of the system and the syndication of modeling the group mind with the group mind is what's fundamental. Um, there's lots of issues with our current tagging systems. For instance, they're not trivially exchangeable between systems because system, con- system context matters so much. So I can't say that the systems we're looking at now are going to be the things that last forever, but I do believe that, that degenerate labeling and, and syndication is going to last a long time. Uh, here's a question, a couple of, on sort of preservation of information in general. Adrian Cotter, is it? Over here. Uh, do we want to make all information durable? Isn't there things we might want to forget and be happy to let go of, such as your old flames? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, the, yeah, there, I mean, there's, 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 I think what we want is, is control. Um, uh, Stuart, do you want a global delete that you control? Uh, no. So I was going to say, I was going to bring up the yo-yo story, actually. Stuart stirred the pot on this 20-some-odd years ago with the phrase, you own your own words, on, uh, on the well, which was meant to be a statement of, I think, personal responsibility, but turned into a global retroactive copyright and control issue, and is still phenomenally... Uh, phenomenally complicated, and there's a lot of, of conversation right now about the idea that you own your own data, right? You own your data, which of course you manifestly don't. It's observable everywhere, right? When I go have a conversation with you, you and I were both in that conversation, and I can't take what I said back. In some systems where there was one and only one copy, you could in fact go take it back as on Caucus. Um, you can't do that on Usenet, as I have discovered to my horror. Uh, so, yeah, there's certainly stuff out there that I would be happy not to have, but I think the issue is um, I, I, don't, I don't think we want to trivially record everything for all time simply because the um, forgetting is an important part of being human and there are things you want to be able to forget or remove or delete. Um, what I think we don't want to do is I think we don't want to accidentally lose things. And I think we especially don't want to accidentally lose them in this sort of I thought you had the car keys way, right? Where within the BBC, right, well, we put this on Laserdisc and we had these computers and then the computers didn't work out and we got rid of everybody and all of a sudden, right? And it really took them four or five years even to figure out that they couldn't get back to the material. So I think what I'm talking about here is is what, what these systems point to, I think, is all steps two through N, where once something is out there, Right? We'd like to be able to watch it. We'd like to be able to characterize it. We'd like to be able to have lots of sort of degenerate views of it. Um, but whether or not it's out there is up, is up to the user. Now, one of the things that's always been true about large-scale systems is it's very hard to retract things. And people who are used to office email don't understand why the whole Internet can't have one of those I'd like to take that email back buttons. Um, but those don't, it's, it's much harder to model that in an end-to-end network than it is in a controlled network. So... The personal risk for losing content you'd rather have, uh, rather have controlled. Once it's out there, it's almost impossible to delete. Um, but I think the question of whether or not we, we emit that data is separate from once emitted, how do we, how do we characterize and handle it? It's interesting just to tell a story from the well uh, back in 84, 85, 86. Um, because it was relatively open software on their PicoSpan and everybody was messing around in the Unix inside it. Uh, some of the users invented commands like uh, delete everything I ever wrote on the system. And uh, somebody would uh, have a mood swing like Tom Mandel 
and uh, enrage at everybody, which was temporary, but nevertheless very effective. He would delete everything he ever wrote in any of the conferences he was in. Thereby, since he was a very long, large poster, removing a great deal of the meaning from those conferences. And the people who were in those conferences were deeply pissed off right. that Tom right. basically threw away their conversation along right. with his right. uh, hissy fit. So uh, is that the future, or is that something that systems no, are so peculiar now that that can't happen? That, I think I think that th there will be less and less of that because the peculiarity of caucus is that it managed the entire conversation as one spool in one place, and there's many fewer there are many fewer times where converse, uh, content is in one and only one place. Um, I didn't I didn't mention this because it's such a uh, uh, such a separate issue, but. On all the characteristics I talked about here in terms of brittleness and versus degeneracy and shearing lines and so forth, um, by far the worst offender is DRM, right? I'm interested in classification systems for a separate reason, but, but DRM has the characteristic of making content um, hard to copy. It makes it bit sensitive so that it's... Digital using, rights management. Di I'm sorry, right. digital rights management. Mm -hmm. All of the attempts to lock up uh, content into hard-to-read, hard-to-playback formats. Um, typically as, a, as, a, as an attempt by copyright holders to, to prevent, uh, prevent widespread copying. Um, that is much more where those kinds of losses are going to come from in the future. What's happening to things like conversations is it is being so widely copied mm -hmm. because now um, people, are, you know, people are downloading RSS feeds rather than just reading things through green screen as mm -hmm. on Caucus. So they would have that it. The accident of Caucus was to have things in one and only one place. So that if you, if you mangled that copy, mm -hmm. it was mangled everywhere. Um, the, so storage has already effectively become degenerate mm -hmm. um, for everything except strongly locked down content. And I think that, that we're now seeing that sort of degeneracy move to higher levels of the system. So this kind of massive redundancy is a... Is a preservation uh, foundation that's happening. Massive redundancy is a preservation foundation that's happening as long as we don't get the I thought you had the car keys risk, which is, oh, there must be a copy somewhere. And no one will ever know when there's not a copy anywhere until they go looking for right. it, which is why I was talking about sort of be great if we could get copy, if we could get content to start stinking when it goes out of scope. Because we, we have short windows to save it, but not long windows in the, in the, in the syndicated storage system we have now. That can be arranged. Uh, I mean, uh, we talk about buildings. If you have natural gas in your house, when it leaks, it stinks. And it right. stinks not because natural gas smells bad, but because they add ethyl mercaptan, which smells like rotten eggs, to the gas. And so then when it leaks, before your house explodes, uh, you have this graceful degradation experience right. of a stinky house, and then you call somebody to fix it. Right. So how would you do that in software, please? Well... Uh, one of the things you can do is, um, for at least for anything that's widely characterized, right? Anything that's widely, you know, everybody keeps tagging Cathedral in the Bazaar, mm -hmm. right? And they, they typically tag the, the version that's on the SR site, rather, Eric Raymond site, rather than uh, the version that's on First Monday. Now, let's say that Raymond throws a hissy fit, a not uh, improbable, a not, a not, a not impossible to imagine occurrence, um, and suddenly it's gone, right? If the tagging hits the wall, no one's tagging that URL. Um, you've got 30 days to pull it out of the Yahoo cache, at least 30 days, right? Um, you can go to Brewster and say, have you got that yet? What versions do you have it in for the Internet Archive? Um, so you've got short windows, right? I remember once when we were um, building a website, I was the CTO of a, a web shop called Site Specific, and at one point when we were building a website, we lost the server, right? Um, head crash, some, some, we'd, we'd completely lost the disk. 
But enough people were working on individual pages on their desktops that we were able to largely recreate the site to rebuild it by simply going to individual machines and pulling it out of cache. Right? But those are short-term interventions, analogous to the golden hour after a wound in the field, but before you get back to the army hospital. Right? If you can get them back during the golden hour, the survival rates are much higher. I guess there's a kind of a golden month for digital content. And if you could get some hint that people were stopping pointing to a certain URL because it had for, for any reason gone out of scope, you've got about a month to go find it and, and make copies elsewhere. That's a very helpful addition to the, the preservation thinking world, actually, is that sense of the pace at which right. things are recoverable. Right. And beyond a certain point, they become less and less recoverable. And, and the less and less means you can recover them, but it's more and more expensive. And of course, any money that goes here doesn't go there. It requires more active noticing and things right. like that. Right. But also, when you, when you spend money to try and reconstruct something, that, that's resources you can't give to another thing. So, in a way, the content you don't end up preserving there is stuff you weren't paying attention to while you were trying to resuscitate the... Um, the, the stuff you were focused on. Well, this brings up the social economic question, which is that storage is basically free. It's easy to store. You just hit a button, bang, it's yeah. stored. Uh, the cost of gigabytes is uh, going towards zero. What's the cost of preservation? Well, oh, gosh. Um, since preservation is an outcome, we won't know for some centuries or some, you know, whatever the, whatever the time frame is. But the... Uh, the issue is, I think, that the, the, the falling storage costs are actually increasing the problem here because um, they're actually increasing the amount of content being produced. It's not, it's not <laughs> constant storage falling constant dollars for constant content. Um, what I think is coming is real options theory. Real options is how much would you pay not to have to decide today, right? Would it be worth something to you if you face a yes or no decision to postpone it until you get more information? And the classic problem in a library is a rearage, right? We've got all these books sitting here, and we've got to either classify them or categorize them or get rid of them because they're costing us money just sitting there on the shelf, right? At this point, if it costs even a nickel uh, worth of human time, it doesn't make sense to delete a 100-megabyte file. There's, you just don't save anything in hardware, and that's going through the roof. So we're now, we now have this pool of things where it's cheaper to keep material which you may in the future want to decide to preserve. It's, key, it's cheaper to keep it as storage but without yet asserting that you're preserving it. So I think the cost of preservation is best thought of as a time series where you're trying to lower the future cost of making the choice by providing people more options now. And one good way to do it is just to have lots of stored copies so that later if they decide something is important they can come back and get it. But without having to have all of those things be fully ingested and marked up into formal preservation systems. But there's a, a decay of knowing why something might be worth preserving it's or not, where it is and all of that as time goes by. It's not a, I think it's not a decay of why... The, the weird thing about why something might be preserving is it goes through this weird 90-year yeah. dip, right? If somebody told you, hey, I'm going to show you the, the New York Times and all the ads in the New York Times from 1995, so great. Right. You know, a Pentium 90 with, you know, tricked out, right, with a 100 megabyte disk, right? These are the ads you're going to be seeing. Not so interesting, right? If I said I was going to show you the New York Times with all the ads from 1895, that's interesting, right? There's this 90 or so year window 
where something is far enough away not to be part of the present day anymore and kind of boring, but not yet so far that it's interesting. And I think that if we can save things through that window without incurring a lot of expense, people will come back and find it. The other thing is that unlike the stuff that's labeled in your kitchen, unlike the chickpeas and the tomatoes, you can look inside these cans. Mm-hmm. Right? So assuming that we keep the content around, people can go back later and try to find bits of it. Um, and, and you know, in the same way that we want people to keep the ads without having to spend a whole, you know, a whole lot of time characterizing ads because we can go back and look later. I think in addition to formal preservation, we just want to keep a lot of stuff around and, and let people look in after the fact. And yet with the multi-directional accumulative tagging you're talking about, you're not talking about a can of peas with a label on it that says peas. In 10 years' time, you're talking about a can of peas that has about a half mile of labels right. between you and right. it. Right. All different. But the thing about... Uh, that just means you can find the peas through several different hands. If you're looking through tagging... So the redundancy saves you. Right. right. The redundancy, and it also tells you all kinds of things because you can start to do real-time series about... Ah. For instance, if software starts to apply to Perl and Python, you can say, when did that happen, by simply watching when those tags drifted into overlap. They don't currently overlap. There's a judgment about these two programming languages versus those two. We can imagine that changing, but instead of saying, oh, now that's true, we can say, we watched that happen. Right. And that, that process um, is, uh, is an antidote, I believe, to the former Soviet Union problem, which is the classification system which is meant to be, um, meant to be future-proofed. Right? I mean, effectively, to, 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 to enter into a classification system, it forces you into the job of being a fortune teller which is a historically low success profession. Right? And we've seen a number of cases like Soviet Union to former Soviet Union, where the failed prediction of this will be a stable and long-lasting category has no obvious response. Tagging the response is trivial, which is people will just start tagging it differently when things change, and you'd actually be able to watch the change. Right? You could see when the Ukraine tag took over from the Soviet Union tag mm-hmm. for cities in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I'll finish up with one question, uh, which is sort of the question we keep coming back to, which is uh, digital isn't durable yet. It's been getting less durable pretty steadily for four or five decades now. Uh, Do you see uh, in in the intractability of the problem is an interesting one. You've just talked for an hour and a half on one corner of the the issue. Do you see digital preservation becoming uh, a solved problem? I don't think it's a solved problem because it's a, it's, a, it's a wicked problem, which is to say it's a problem where every iteration counts and there's only, um, there's only local optimizations. It will always be with us because the longer you go, the more shearing lines you get, and the more shearing lines you get, the more it's a social problem. I don't, so I think that there's always going to be some kind of social calculation. The fact is that since ones and zeros are not directly interpretable by people, we always have to have some intervening system, and that system has to reflect both the digits and us equally. Right? So you can't just ignore the digits because then you can't get the format, but you also can't ignore us because then we potentially can't interpret the results. I do see short-term a strong fork between open culture and closed culture. Right? We will lose more DRM-protected things than we will, than we will lose open things. Um, you can see this right now with Time Select, which is the New York Times um, attempt to pull... Uh, in particular, the op-ed column is the most popular thing in the paper and certainly the most widely syndicated thing outside of our people hissing with time select. Yes, excellent. Blog um, man. 
so um, uh, what the Times doesn't realize about Time Select is they think, oh, we have this product and now we're charging for it. Um, what's actually happening is they've changed the nature of the product, project because they've greatly reduced its shareability. Mm-hmm. They've said, oh, you know, that thing that Paul Krugman just said, let's keep that between us. Right? It's like a secret opinion. Paul Krugman's secret opinion is X because you can't share that URL. And as a result, the things that will tend to propagate are the things that don't have those characteristics. Mm-hmm. What I don't know is, is there some um, Gotterdammerung of those two cultural imperatives, hmm. openness creating a kind of growth, closeness being a kind of tax on um, temporally local interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it may be that a hundred years from now, we are much more able to understand the open parts of our society than the closed parts. Uh, it may also be that we come to some kind of compromise that refuses those. But right now, those two cultures are certainly moving in uh, very sharply divergent directions. And um, pressure towards uh, open formats and open access is allowing in for free the kind of degeneracy that, that um, the Rosetta Stone exemplified as uh, a key preservation strategy um, for low-cost regimes over a long time. So as I get it... Uh the digital preservation problem, which you've addressed tonight, what we've learned is is that in one form or another, it's going to be with us the rest of our lives. Oh, yeah. And uh, therefore, that's a short. That's a short time. It's um, yeah, yeah, for I the mean, rest of everybody's lives. Exactly. And therefore, it's best to understand it because it's not going away. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh.